all right, guys. Uh, I was also going to tell you about the Mercy Ministry uh, thing I forgot to tell you about. We had a Mercy Ministry visit to an orphanage called Karnakasi. We had about 18 of our members and visitors come. So we're really thankful for you guys, uh, whoever was able to make it for that day. It was a great visit. We enjoyed hanging out with the kids and uh, we'll love to continue that relationship as we move on uh, further. If, if you guys want to know more about that or want to be part of that, again, uh, talk to Emily or myself and then we'll get you the details for the Mercy Ministry efforts that we have in this city. All right, so today we're going to take a break from the series of the book of John we've been going through. And we're going to go to the series of our Minor Prophets. Just a reminder, the Minor Prophets is the last 12 books in the Old Testament. It's called Minor, not because it's insignificant, not because it's not important, but because it's shorter in length compared to the Major Prophets of the Old Testament. The Minor Prophet we're currently in is the book of Obadiah. And the usual content for the Minor Prophets is that God gives a warning to a specific nation usually is to Israel, a nation that he calls his people. He warns them the whole time for their sin, for their idolatry, for all that. But sometimes the Lord does, through the minor prophets, give warnings to other countries. And the book we're going through today, Obadiah, is actually God warning the nation of Edom through his prophet Obadiah. We're in the second sermon. We're already halfway through the book because it's a short book. Now, Obadiah is a warning passage to a country back then in the Old Testament named Edom. But I believe this passage also happens to be rather timely and relevant to us today. God's word to Edom through Obadiah actually can be of help to us as we navigate the very difficult, confusing question of how Christians are supposed to react and respond to injustice. If a particular situation of injustice occurs, what should we do? And is everyone supposed to react in the same exact way? Is there a blanket rule for all Christians everywhere to always be activists or to always be pacifists? Do we respond with the same intensity? And if we don't, then how do we think about that? How do we know when to do what? It's important to think about because how we respond to these instances of injustice. This says a lot about who our God is. It says a lot about what our God values, his personality, his character, what he feels about injustice, how much he's concerned and cares about grace and mercy towards those who do commit injustice. And it might be particularly important to us today in the current political tensions that this city or this country is going through. Now, Nowhere in the Bible, and neither does our passage today, give us a blanket rule statement that says every single Christian must treat every single instance of injustice in the same exact way. We always need to be activists, or we always need to be pacifists. Nowhere does it say that. I think different situations for different people in different roles call for different responses. And God's words today won't give us a blanket statement either, but it will Remind us of who he is, remind us of his promises, what he has done for his people, what he will do for his people. And as we study and as we pray this, I hope that this passage will continue to shape our worldview to his and mold our hearts to him in such a way that guides us and instructs us of how to respond to situations of injustice in such a way that's integral 
to His truth and to our purpose to preach the gospel, to glorify our Lord and our King. Thus, neither will I presume to treat the sermon as instructions of how to respond to the particular injustice that is probably in everyone's mind right now. But I will attempt my best to expound the word of God that happens to speak about injustice, it just happens to be so, and faithfully apply it to whatever modern day issues we may be encountering. All right, so let's get to it. There's three things I want to point out from our passage. First, the confusion in Christian justice. Two, the guideline for Christian justice. And three, the strength and courage behind Christian justice. The confusion in Christian justice, the guideline for Christian justice, and the strength and courage behind Christian justice. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into our sermon. Father, let us um, treat your word in the redemptive context it's meant to be read in, that you are a God who will redeem all things. And you've done this for people by dying on a cross. And that you've done this for sinners who don't deserve it by taking upon yourself the punishment due to us. And as we read this passage in this context, give us the wisdom and understanding, be with our minds and be merciful to our hearts as we study this holy word and as we find in it a biblical worldview and as we see in it a love that shapes our very heart as we look upon you and upon your cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get to the first point, the confusion in Christian justice. As said, the book of Obadiah is a warning for the nation of Edom. God was angry at them. Why was God angry at them? Because, as we've seen last time in our first sermon, when God's people, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, was defeated and conquered by another country called Babylon, Edom, instead of helping Israel, exploited them. Israel was weak. They just were defeated by this country called Babylon. And Edom seized the opportunity to continue to rob them in their time of weakness. They mistreated them. They took advantage of them. Behold, injustice. What made it worse is Edom was originally Israel's brother, it says in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Israel here is described as Jacob. Who's that? Then also, interestingly enough, in verse 8, Edom is described as Esau. Who is Jacob and Esau? Well, if you read the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau are the sons of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. And in Genesis 35 to 36, if you read it, you'll see that the people of Israel were actually descendants of Jacob. And the people of um, Edom were descendants of Esau. Israel and Edom literally were from the same bloodline. They're brothers. They're immediate family. Israel, Jacob, was betrayed by their own family, Edom, who is Esau. In Genesis, it even says that they shared the same king at one point. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says that they were companions at one point. This isn't some distant family. This is people they were companions with. This betrayal, this injustice was totally unexpected, done by their own kin, by those who should have been their companions. So the word of God came to them through his prophet Obadiah, but God's response was a bit confusing. 
Because God seems here to be saying two different things. Let's, let's get into that. First, in verses 8 to 10, it sounds like he's saying, Christians, how we're supposed to treat injustices like Israel experienced back then, is by not doing anything. That, that's at least what it sounds like in verses 8 to 10. We're not supposed to do anything because God is the one who will avenge, right? God is the one who will have his righteousness and his justice and his kingdom, and God, God's the one who will do all that, not us. And it almost kind of sounds like he's calling us to be pacifists. Look at verse 8. Will, who? will I not on that day destroy the wise men out of Edom? God will do that. Who will ultimately make all things right? God is. He even tells us when he will do that. On that day, he says. When is that day? Go all the way to verse 15. It says, on the day of the Lord. On that day, on the day of the Lord, God will make all things right. God will deal with every wrong and injustice. If you read the book of Joel and 2 Peter, you'll see that this is Jesus' second coming. When he comes again, and every person will be held accountable for their deeds and for what they've done. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. God will deliver justice for his people, and it's true that this means God's people, those who are in Christ, can now in this moment, in the midst of any flood, have a sense of deep rest, knowing that he will fulfill it. Although the world system may fail us, although our closest earthly relatives may fail us, though our own ability to uphold justice will fail us, God shall not fail, it says. Genesis 18, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's, the answer is yes, he will. But then if you read verse 11, it gets confusing. Because we're in verse 8 to 10, it seems like God is telling us to be patient. Verse 11 sounds like he's telling us to take action. We see here why God was actually upset at Edom. Why was God upset at Edom in verse 11? Because they were passive. Because they stood aloof, it says. Meaning they just stood there when a specific injustice occurred. Verse 11, on the day you stood aloof, on the day you just stood there, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, talking about Babylon destroying Israel, you stood aloof, you, you cast lots for Jerusalem. You, Edom, were like one of them. God said, Edom, because you just stood there when a wrong was done in front of you, you're just like Babylon. You're just like the one who committed the wrong. You should have done something, Edom. See, this is confusing. Which one is it, God? When an injustice is done, when a wrong has been presented to us, what do we do? Do we stay and not respond, or do we respond? It kind of sounds like you're being a little bit flip-floppy here. And this can often become a, quite a heated conversation for us because we, we both love mercy and love justice at the same time. And we're, 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 we're playing a tug-of-war between the two, and we don't really know how to respond to each situation especially in a time like this where gross injustice has just been, for many, claimed committed. We value justice and mercy, so what do we do? And many of us end up coming up with blanket statements. We say, Christians should never act. We should always be pacifists at every single time, every single person. And 
And some will say, no, 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 Christians must be activists. We must defend justice. Every single time for every single person in every single situation. And that's what we have to be careful to do. And usually, most of us here aren't on two extremes, but we kind of lean towards one or the other. We, we all have our tendencies. We all have our preferences. And what makes it even more confusing, many very mature Christians and giants of the faith are advocates for both ends. Rep- very reputable theologians, Dietrich, D- Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know him, he's an acclaimed German theologian and pastor, and he lived during World War II when Hitler reigned. And he died in a concentration camp because he decided, along as being a pastor, he also wanted to spy against Hitler and the Nazis. He was brought to the uh, camp, and he was hanged there. And he said a very, very famous quote. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Those are powerful words. And is there biblical truth to that? Absolutely. And what he did was courageous and it was brave, and I'm in no way minimizing that. But then there's another man who many of you might know called Charles Spurgeon, also a great theologian, amazing preacher. He's a courageous man. He's not a sissy. If you, if you listen to his sermons, he rebukes people all the time. He was actually called the Prince of Preachers. And he said this, Surely, if Christians were forbidden to fight for the person of Jesus, they may not fight to preserve themselves or any city they should happen to dwell in. The spirit of war is at extremely opposite point to the spirit of the gospel. Does that sound very spiritual too? Absolutely. He leans toward the pacifist camp, whereas Bonhoeffer leans towards the uh, activist camp. He, Charles Spurgeon would say, to take an insult and harm to remain silent is to be like Jesus. Did not the psalm say he was led to the slaughter, but he did not open his mouth? There's a bunch of Bible verses to defend both sides every single time. So which one is it? How are we supposed to think about all this? Now, let me repeat one more time. I don't think this passage, nor do I think the Bible, gives blanket answers to always be passive or to always be activist in every single situation for every single person. I don't think the Bible does that. But I do think that it does give us guidelines so that each person in their own various roles, in their situations, can use wisdom, look at the situation, and figure out how to appropriately respond. A side note before we move on to our second point, God does sometimes in the Bible give us blanket statements that are clear instructions and commands that are straightforward. Do not commit adultery. Don't use wisdom to decide whether or not to do that. Just don't do it. That's pretty clear. Don't worship false false gods. It's, It's straightforward, right? But for the most part... What is given to us by his word are not direct commands. We have to understand who he is through his word, what he's promised to his people, his character, his love for his people, the sinful reality of our hearts. We have to develop a biblical worldview so that when questions like this come up, we have a good sense of how to answer him. A lot of people ask me the question, what career path should I take? And my answer is, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell you a direct command about a particular career. But if you have a biblical worldview, if your heart and your loves has been shaped and molded by the gospel, 
you will know which career paths for your situation would be most pleasing to the Lord. And go for it. That's called wisdom. It's not textbooks, A, B, C, multiple choice answers. That's not how life works. That's not how the Bible works for the most part. Understand truths about me, understand the situation, live in such a way that glorifies me and affirms my righteous place as king of all the earth, as your Lord and Savior, and live your life. That's, that's what wisdom is. That's why we're called to pray for wisdom. So here's how this connects to our passage and to our sermon. When we're confronted with a particular injustice, how do we respond to that? That's a wisdom question. Get to know the details of the situation, understand it to the best of your ability, then walk it through a paradigm that's been shaped by Scripture, which leads us to our second point. Number two, the guideline for Christian injustice. In verses 8 to 11, we get a glimpse uh, of exactly what it was God rebuked Edom for, and also for the guideline of how we are supposed to react to a wrong when it's been committed to us, whether in a macro level or in a micro personal level. And here we see God pronounce in verse in verse 12 to 14, eight specific things that Edom should not have done. Let, let's read verses 12 to 14. We'll get our guideline um, from this passage. Now, this isn't an exhaustive guideline. You'd have to study the, all of Scripture to get that. This is just from this particular passage today. Verses 12 to 14. But do not gloat. This is talking to Edom. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. There's eight of them specifically. And if you look at the list of all eight, it's interesting to note that every single one of them is talking about how what Edom should have done to Israel and not on what Edom should have done to Babylon. Every single one of the do-nots is about what Edom should have done for Israel in the day of their misfortune, and not on what Edom should have done to Babylon, the ones who attacked and did the injustice. Let's, let's talk about this for a little bit. Here's the list of what Edom did wrong. Verses 12, there's three do-nots. Do not gloat, literally in the Hebrew, do not look down. Do not rejoice, do not boast. That literally means laugh. Do not laugh at them in their day of their misfortune, their, their, um, their injustice. And notice the focus is not on what they should have, how they should have retaliated against Babylon, but on what they should have done for Israel. The first wrong in verse 12, these three combined to one sentence, is Edom had lack of empathy for Israel's calamity. Israel had lack of empathy for Israel's calamity. Then verse 13, do not enter their gates, do not gloat over his disaster, and do not look and do not loot their wealth. Edom entered Israel's gate in the time of their weakest spot, and they stole from them because they had no army to protect them. Again, the focus is not on what they should have done to Babylon, but on how they have wronged Israel in the time of their calamity. So first, Edom had lack of empathy for Israel's calamity. Second, Edom took advantage of Israel's calamity. Verse 14, same. The focus is on what they should have done to Israel, not on what they should have done.
Babylon, to Babylon. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his fugitives. What happened was some of the Israelites that escaped the, Bab- the Babylonian army, um, they were running away, and in the midst of their escape, they were cut off by the Edomites. They were captured, and they handed them over. The details aren't clear, but most likely it was to slave trade. They, they took him, and they had him out of slave trade. Don't do that, God said. So the third is Edom treated Israel like less than human in their time of calamity. Edom had lack of empathy for Israel's calamity. Edom took advantage of Israel's calamity. Edom treated Israel like less than human in their time of calamity. Those are the wrongs that Edom did. Important to note, again, God did not say, you should have attacked the Babylons. You should have avenged uh, the wrong that was done by destroying them or by, that's not the focus here. The focus is what they should have done for Israel. Now, here's how this gives us a guideline. Here's how it helps us develop a worldview that it can inform our wisdom pursuit of how to respond to a particular wrong that's been done. And it's this. Whatever we decide to do, whether to respond or not respond, it should focus more on caring for the person being wronged than it is to maliciously harm the person who did the wrong. I'm not saying do or, I'm not saying to not do or to do. Whatever it is you in your wisdom will decide to do, the focus is not it is more on caring for the person who's been wronged than it is to maliciously harm the ones who did the wrong. Focus is not what Edom should have done to Babylon, but on how they should have cared for Israel. But here's where it gets a bit more confusing. Sometimes, in order to care for the person being wronged, we may be required to confront the person who did the wrong. It gets messy again. It gets confusing again. At the time when you think I'm leaning towards one thing, (laughs) I'm not. I honestly am not. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, in order to care for the person being wronged, we can't avoid confrontation with the person who did the wrong. But even then, even if we choose to confront the person who did the wrong because we have, in our wisdom, through God's word, decided that's the best thing to do in this current situation, even then, we must decide in our hearts to do it because we care for the person who was wronged, not to maliciously harm the people who committed the wrong, to care for, to love, protect the victim. The good guiding question for us to ask ourselves is this, am I responding this way to harm the perpetrator or to care for the victim? Am I responding in this way to harm the perpetrator or to care for the victim? So, (coughs) what is the paradigm we have now that's been shaped by the biblical truths we've learned so far in the passage? First, Point one, that all the wrongs in the world will be made right, not by you, not by me, not by a particular church, not by a particular denomination, not by a particular political country, uh, p- a political party, but by the King of Kings, by God himself, so that whether you choose to act or not act to whatever injustice is before you, let this truth guide your decision, that the... The weight of justice does not rest in your hands, but in God's. Second, what you do, whatever you decide to do, must be focused on caring 
for and loving on the person being wronged than it is to harm the one who committed the wrong. Now, that doesn't mean you never confront the person who did the wrong, because sometimes in order to protect and care for the one being wrong, you must confront the person who did the wrong, or else you're not caring and loving for protecting them. But if you do decide to confront them after thinking through all this, it should still be motivated by a desire to protect the victim and not to maliciously harm the perpetrator. Okay, so that's what we have so far. That's how our worldview is being shaped. That's a paradigm we can bring our situation through as we think about how we're to respond to a particular injustice done personally to you or in a bigger scale. Now, at this point, we've understood that we, okay, we, we, know the situ- we know a situation, we can think of a situation, we know that we're supposed to get the details of it, and we know we're supposed to bring it through these paradigms and these truths that God has told us from, from our passage. And now after that, we can get a better picture of what we may be called to do or not to do after, after in wisdom thinking through all that. And at the end, you might get an answer. You might think, okay, for my situation, based on the truths I know, it is wisest for me to not respond because of A, B, C, D, E. Or, based on the situation and the truths that I know, it actually might be wisest for me to act and respond based on A, B, C, D, E, whatever it may be. But I don't think that's enough. Because after bringing a particular situation through this biblical paradigm and you get the answer of what you're supposed to do, what you still need, what I still need, is the strength and courage to stay true to that decision the strength and courage to stay true to that conviction. Because as I mentioned before, we all here have our bents. We do. Some are naturally more pacifists. Some are naturally more activists. And if after bringing a situation through a paradigm, at the end, it's it's, it's good for us to, we see that it's best for us to not respond, it's usually very difficult for someone who has an activist bent, bent to find the strength to not respond. It's really hard. If we have an activist bent, and if in our wisdom we've decided it's best for me to not act, to hold ourselves back takes extreme strength. But the opposite is also true. If, after bringing a situation through a, our biblical paradigm, and at the end we actually see that it's best for us to respond, perhaps even to confront the perpetrator, it's usually very difficult for those who have a pacifist bent to find the courage to do so. It's scary to do so especially if you're naturally an introvert or not naturally confrontational. So where can we find the strength and the courage, whatever our bent is, to stay true to the convictions, to the answer we find at the end of our paradigm pursuit? Brings us to our last point. Point number three, the strength and courage behind Christian justice. We see this in the last verse, verse 15. So far, we've studied this passage assuming that the Lord's day, the day when God comes back again, it's good news, right? That's the assumption we've, we've had as we study this passage, but it's actually not necessarily good news to everyone. Yes, it is a day where all wrongs will be made right. It is a day where all injustices will be dealt with, when all sin will be accounted for. As you have done, it shall be done to you, it says. So then really, who is, this good, who is this Lord's Day good news for? It's only good news to those who have never sinned. 
it's only good news for those who have done no wrong. It is only good news to those who have not committed injustice. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head, verse 15 says. This is a law in Israel called the Talian law. The Talian law is found everywhere else. They, they, they put a name to it. Um, it's not a biblical name, but they just they have a name to that. Uh, and, and you see, the Talian law is a law of absolute justice, where Yahweh will make all things right. No wrong will be remain unhandled, undealt with. And if you've done wrong, if you've done an injustice, if you've sinned, you will be accountable for it. The Lord's day is only good news for those who has not committed any of those, because or else it will fall back upon your head. So, what about us? What about you? Is the Lord's day good news to you? To me? Have we wronged? Have we sinned? Have we treated someone unjustly? I know I have many times, both intentionally and unintentionally. And I tremble at the Lord's day because if it's based on my goodness, if it's based on my track record, the day of the Lord is terrifying to me. Absolutely terrifying. For the wrongs I've done is, is too many to count. How about you? Is the Lord's day something scary to you? Or is it good news or is it bad news? We've all committed injustice in our lives. We've all mistreated others in our lives. We've all committed wrongs. <clears throat> Sorry. And you know the Lord's day is good news only for those who are absolutely pure in heart. Let me just, let me just drive in this point one more time. Psalm 24, 3-4. <clears throat> says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has, a clean who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Pure means absolutely pure. There can't be one wrong in you. James 2.10 says that if you've committed one wrong, you might as well have broken all the laws, because that would make you no longer pure. And God of holy, 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 as we just sang, cannot be with sin. The day of the Lord shall make everyone tremble. Not just Edom, not just people out there. We might be at this moment currently associating with perpetrators of injustice, but that every single person in this room today, me the foremost, us the foremost being sinners, except for one man. Scripture does tell us of one man, of a high priest, it says, who was absolutely pure in heart. He's a blessed man, the Psalms talk about. He's the one mentioned in Matthew to have fulfilled God's law. He's the sinless one, the book of Hebrews say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There is one man who need not tremble upon the day of the Lord. Everyone else must tremble, but him. But he did tremble, didn't he? In Gethsemane, before his crucifixion, our Lord Jesus trembled more than any other man did before him. His soul was deeply troubled, it says. He begged his disciples to pray with him, it says. It affected him physiologically to where during this time of prayer, his pores opened up so much that he was drenched in sweat. He trembled. Why? Wasn't he sinless? Wasn't he pure in heart? Why did he have to tremble? If anybody is to rejoice of the day of the Lord, it'd be him. He trembled because he decided to do something unimaginably sacrificial. 
even after perfectly fulfilling God's law, even after being the only man to ever earn the right to ascend God's hill, you know what he did? He traded places with us. And he allowed himself to be nailed onto a cross. He allowed himself to pay for our sins so that we may be counted as pure in heart, so that we may no longer tremble. And when the Lord's day comes, we can expect it with joy. The judgment of God fell full force upon him so that we may send his hill. Let us never forget those who have received the cross are saved by grace, yes, but it was still Italian law. It was still an eye for an eye. It just wasn't our eye. Someone still paid. So now, for those in Christ, verse 15 is radically transformed. At the risk of committing heresy, I'm going to do a translation of my own. For those who are in Christ, it reads like this. As you have done, it shall be done unto Christ and not unto you. And your deeds shall return upon his head and not yours. This is it. This is where we find the strength and courage to stay true to whatever decision we decide to react in after we've brought through our injustice season through the paradigm. If, if you're an activist, this is where you find the strength to not respond. If after going through the paradigm, that's what you've decided is best to do. Because someone has remained silent for you. Because someone walked and was slain on a cross for your mistakes. He was drenched with, with your impurities so that you may be counted as pure. Because our God stood aloof and told his disciples to stand aloof. Put down your sword, Peter, he said. Let this injustice continue. This is not the time to respond because our God will use it for the good. And he did. The salvation of man came through it. But here's the twist. On the other hand, if you're a pacifist, this very same gospel is also where you can find the courage to respond. If, after analyzing the situation, you go through the same paradigms and have decided that it's best for you to respond, although it's uncomfortable for you because you're pacifists, this will give you the courage to do that because if our God was moved by compassion to die for us who justly deserved punishment, who are we to remain silent when someone is receiving a punishment that he or she does not deserve? Now you ask me, how should Christians respond to a particular situation of injustice or perhaps to a particular situation of injustice that many of us are thinking of right now? I don't know. The answer may vary for different people, different roles, different situations. Bring it through the paradigm. paradigm and let's, let's summarize it one more time as we close. What paradigm? First, get to know the situation well. Second, hold fast, though difficult, to the fact that God will make all things right. And the victory of his kingdom does not lay on your hands. The falling and the rising of a nation does not dictate his victory. He's been through the ages. There's been countless of political parties, countless nations, countless countries, kingdoms that has fallen and risen. He remains king of kings overall. We need not rush the process nor view injustice as ultimately resting upon our hands. And if we choose to act, it's not because we think that the victory of God's kingdom depends on our actions, 
No, no, his kingdom will be established. But if we do choose to act, it's because we want to care for and love and serve and protect the one who this injustice has been committed to. The third, it doesn't mean you're not supposed to respond at all. Edom was rebuked for not responding. But then again, your decision to act must be more about caring for the person who was wronged than it is to maliciously harm the ones who committed the wrong. And lastly, if you do decide to act in a certain way, let the gospel guide every step, every movement, every breath. Let the fact that you too, us too, are wrongdoers. Let the fact that we all are unjust. Let the fact that we are all sinners and don't deserve mercy. And the only reason why we're embraced by God is because he died for us, not because we're any better than anybody else. Because he had mercy on his people and died for those who were once his enemies that he may have a relationship with them. Let that dictate every step of your way, whatever you decide to do. Whether you choose to act or not, the way you choose to act, the way you choose not to act, what you choose to say or not to say, the intensity of each one, they can vary. Whatever you choose to do, I pray that the results will be biblically based on a biblical worldview and driven by a gospel-shaped heart. Let me end the sermon uh, this way and leave us with the promise that our God has made to his church. That despite the falling and raisings, risings of any political parties or leaders, despite even the fallings and risings of whole nations, kingdoms may rise and fall, governments may shape or break, come what may. Let the promise of your God stay true, that he has promised you he will bring his kingdom justice to earth. And that promise has been sealed by his blood. And we now live faithfully as children of that promise. For to us a child is born, Christ. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's your promise. This is the king you find hope in. This is the kingdom you look forward to. This is the country you're ambassadors of. And this is the citizenship you belong to, if you are in him. Hold fast to that, however you choose to respond to whatever case of injustice may be brought forth to you until you see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, what a sensitive and heart-wrenching topic it is. Um, what an emotional time it is, uh, not only for us personally, who are experiencing perhaps different injustices, but also for us as a city, who um, uh, claim that we are currently in front of an injustice. Father, guide your church, guide your people to respond, not respond, to react, not react, to say, not to say, whatever it is you have led each one to do. Um, hopefully, after going through a biblical paradigm, whatever we've decided to do, give us the strength and courage to do that 
even if what we think is most faithful to you might not be our personal preference bent. Lord, let us remain rested, even in our action, remain rested, that the promise of your kingdom and the promise of your glory and the promise of your victory does not lie on our hands, but on the hands of Christ as it is filled with the blood when it was nailed onto a cross. It will be won. And now in that gospel, we find the strength to remain silent when you're called us to, and we find the courage to speak up if you've called us to do that. Give us the wisdom, Father. Wisdom things are hard. It's not a checklist. Give us, we pray, wisdom, which Proverbs says begins by the fear of the Lord, that we may live our lives as your children as we await this promise of your kingdom. And thank you, Lord, that on that cross, you have given us all of who you are, that we may be counted as pure and blameless in your sight, and we may now ascend your hill and be with you, not because we're any better, not because we're any more righteous, not because of any of our religious acts, but because of the work of Christ on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.